The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, the shift that really happens in the mid-2010s, I think it starts before Trump, but it really becomes visible once the Trump administration comes to office, is that these same emergency applications are used for, you know, sort of nationwide policy disputes, where lower courts will, say, block a Trump administration policy like the travel ban. And, you know, the executive branch goes to the Supreme Court and says, we would like you to unblock this policy while the case works its way up to you. And, you know, there's a lot to say about those cases. The book says a lot about those cases. The one thing I think is undeniable is that was a shift, um, right? The notion that emergency applications were appropriate fodder for just whether policy should go into effect or not is not how those were approached right before the mid-2010s and is now fairly commonplace. I'm Jack Goldsmith, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 16, 2023. In recent years, the Supreme Court's non-merits shadow docket has become a topic of contestation and controversy, especially the court's emergency orders rulings on issues ranging from immigration to abortion to COVID-19 restrictions. To discuss these issues, I sat down with Stephen Vladek, the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas Law School, who is the author of a new book entitled The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. Vladek and I discussed the origins of the contemporary shadow docket in some 1973 emergency orders related to the bombing of Cambodia, why the court shadow docket has grown in prominence in recent years, what's wrong with the shadow docket, and how to fix it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 16, The Shadow Docket. Steve, you're the leading commentator and critic of The Shadow Docket. It was a term coined by Will Bode with respect to the Supreme Court, but you've really made it your issue. And now you've written a book about it. So what is The Shadow Docket? Yeah, so the, the basic idea, and it really was Will's, was to use this evocative shorthand as an umbrella term, as a, you know, just descriptive of everything that the Supreme Court decides other than the, you know, 60-ish fancy merits decisions we get each term in cases that were argued. So, you know, when the Supreme Court decides whether or not to grant certiorari and take up a particular case, that's on the shadow docket. When the Supreme Court 
you know, does something totally anodyne, like giving a party more time for a brief or dividing argument that's on the shadow docket. When the Supreme Court grants or denies an application for emergency relief, either to freeze a lower court ruling or unfreeze it, that's on the shadow docket. And, you know, I, I think Will would agree that he did not mean the term as a pejorative, um, but rather just as a catch-all to suggest here's a pretty significant body of stuff that the Supreme Court does that we ought to pay attention to because sometimes some important decisions are made with significant consequences in that part of the court's docket in a part that's really by tradition much less visible or accessible or noted. And I think, you know, I think that was Will's insight, which I've rather shamelessly appropriated. Well, you weren't shameless about it. You, you always give him full credit. But let's just talk about you know, why it's different. So give us, you know, you know, the merits docket of the Supreme Court is what most people pay attention to most of the time. It's certainly what law students pay attention to most of the time. It's what journalists, at least until recently, paid attention to most of the time. It's highly formalized. Just, just give us a brief description of what happens on the merits docket as a kind of baseline for understanding the shadow docket, which we'll, we'll break apart after you talk about the merits docket. Yeah, sure. So a a typical case on the merits docket, and there are exceptions, but a typical case comes to the Supreme Court as a petition for certiorari to review a decision by either a federal circuit court of appeals or the highest court of a state. Jack, as you know, after usually years of litigation in the lower courts, right, the, the norm is that a case comes to the Supreme Court really at the end of the litigation, or at least at the end of of the resolution of that particular issue. And, you know, the justices will take a couple of months to decide whether or not to grant certiorari. Um, That decision is made without explanation by tradition. And then if and when the court does grant certiorari, then you'll have what's called the merits briefing, where the parties will switch from arguing over whether the court should even hear the case to arguing over how the court should rule. Um, The merits briefing, as you say, is highly formalized. There's a lot of opportunity for participation by amici, by friends of the court. Once that briefing is complete, the justices will hold oral argument. Oral argument, of course, is itself highly ritualized. And then sometime after the oral argument, the justices will hand down the court's decision, which in almost every merits case means some lengthy opinion for the court or at least opinion on behalf of a plurality of the justices, combined with maybe a series of concurring opinions and dissents. Um, and so that's that's sort of the full Monty of the merits docket, where what you're getting is basically every single piece of process that the Supreme Court is able to provide. And it comes down, as you emphasize, we know when merits docket cases are going to be decided. We don't know which cases are going to be decided when, but comes out at 10 o'clock in the morning on specified dates, and it's just all very regularized. Yes, and and the court announces in advance which days it's going to hand down opinions. The opinions are handed down in reverse order of seniority. So as you're sitting there frantically hitting refresh on your web browser, you know that if this opinion is from Justice Kavanaugh, the next one's not going to be from Justice Jackson. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of, you know, sort of ritual and form and formality to everything the court does on the merits docket, so much so that it's actually become something of a sort of a side gig for folks to get into predictions, right? Who's writing which case based upon how other cases were decided and assigned? What do we expect on a particular day in May or June? It's really, it's become quite a sort of a, a, a rigmarole. Okay, so that's, 
you know, I think it's fair to say that that's the baseline of normalcy, or at least that's the baseline of normalcy for uh, important opinions and uh, important decisions of the court, I should say. So now let's talk about, I want to get into talking about the shatter docket, which as you said at the beginning, subsumes lots of different things. I want to get into it by asking you to recount this wonderful story that's lawfare appropriate since it involves the war power about Justice Douglas versus Justice Marshall with regard to an injunction in Cambodia in the 1970s. It's a great story, and it actually has a lot of important consequences for today. Yeah, and and I think it's a really good sort of extended microcosm of of a lot of what I try to talk about in the book. So the book opens with this dispute from the summer of 1973. And Jack, as you know, as well as anyone, Congress and President Nixon are locked in a bitter struggle over basically the future of hostilities in and around Vietnam, um, right? U.S. troops are pulled out of Vietnam in early 1973, but President Nixon, uh, with some amount of controversy, continues to bomb communist strongholds in neighboring Cambodia and elsewhere. And eventually, Congress passes a funding cutoff that basically says, as of August 15th, no more funds will be available for any military operations in or over that part of the world. Um, And this dispute arises as to whether the funding cutoff actually authorizes the bombing up until that point. So Congresswoman Elizabeth Holtzman and a bunch of Air Force officers go into federal court in Brooklyn and convince Judge Orrin Judd um, to issue an injunction blocking the bombing of Cambodia. Jack, still to this day, the only example in American history of a federal injunction against an ongoing military operation. The injunction never goes into effect, or at least at that point, never went into effect. Judge Judd stayed the injunction for two days to give the federal government time to get a stay from the Second Circuit. This the federal government promptly gets, at which point the plaintiffs, Congresswoman Holtzman and the other Air Force officers, go to Thurgood Marshall in his capacity as circuit justice, as the the one of the nine justices assigned to handle emergency applications from the Second Circuit and ask Marshall to lift the state or vacate the stay. This is where things start getting a little bit wacky. So Marshall follows what at that particular time was the standard procedure for these kinds of high profile emergency applications. He holds several hours of oral argument in his chambers at the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., and he files this lengthy opinion Um, explaining why he was not going to lift the stay, why he was going to deny the application to vacate, Um, sort of the the thrust of it being, you know, even if I might be sympathetic to the district court's ruling, Marshall says, my job as circuit justice is to rule as I think the full court would. And so because of that, he denies that the application matters might otherwise have ended there. But the lawyers for Congresswoman Holtzman And these Air Force officers decided to invoke this even more obscure part of the Supreme Court's rules, which allow you to go to a second justice when the first justice has denied relief. Usually, if the court is in session, that automatically kicks it to the full court. But at least back then, before 1980, the court did not stay in session over the summer. Steve, before you go further, before you go further, explain what being in session means. Yeah. So, you know, we take it for granted today, Jack, that the court is always in session, meaning that even when the justices are not physically in Washington or physically on the bench, they're able to act as a full court. So they can hand down a ruling of the full court, a grant or a denial of an emergency application 
jack at any time. This wasn't true before 1980. Before 1980, the court would formally adjourn when the justices rose for their summer recess, meaning that the court itself was not constituted in a way that could act um, over the summer. Um, this is why, for example, in 1942, in the Nazi saboteurs case, Ex parte Kirin, a case near and dear to both of our hearts, the court has to come back for what's called a special term because it wasn't otherwise able to act over the summer. And in 1973, this meant that the full court could not act on Holtzman's application, and rather all she could do was seek out a second circuit justice. So her lawyers fly across the country um, to track down Justice William O. Douglas, who spends the summers at that point in his career in his, basically his shack um, in the woods outside of Yakima, Washington, in a part of the Washington state called Goose Prairie. And, you know, they, they, they show up at, at, at Douglas's door early in the morning. Douglas, you know, greets them unshaven in a bathrobe, says, come back in a couple hours. Um, and when they come back, Douglas says, you know, I want to hold a hearing. So the next day, I think now we're up to Friday, August 3rd, 1973, Douglas convenes a hearing at the nearby federal courthouse in Yakima, Washington, um, where he hears from both sides. He hears from the lawyers for Congresswoman Holtzman. He hears from the local U.S. attorney on behalf of the Justice Department. And Douglas, you know, then spends his sort of rest of the day driving back up to his house in the woods that doesn't have a telephone and relaying through a series of roadside payphones his decision to grant the application, to vacate the state, basically to, to put the injunction into effect and stop the bombing. And that order comes down formally from the Supreme Court Saturday morning uh, around 9.30 Eastern time. The Justice Department then promptly goes back to Justice Marshall and says, all right, Douglas has uh, vacated the stay. The injunction's now in effect. Hey, Justice Marshall, you by yourself can issue your own stay of the injunction so you can put it back on hold. And Marshall acquiesces. So about six hours later, Marshall issues his own stay of Judge Judd's injunction um, and therefore sort of ends the dispute there. And, you know, Jack, as you know, there's this remarkable moment at the end of the second opinion Marshall writes where he says, you know, I have been in touch with the other seven justices and they all agree with this disposition. Basically that like, you know, hey, Douglas, it's eight against one, even though the full court wasn't actually in session. And what I find so striking, Jack, about that example is sort of two things. The first is that was how the court used to handle emergency applications, like one justice acting by himself, which had the virtue that no one would ever confuse what the individual justice had done with a ruling of the full court. No one would ever think that like this was the full court speaking. And the other piece of it is, and a single justice acting by himself was actually able to provide more process, right? Briefing, oral argument, writing an opinion than was the norm and is the norm today when the full court is acting on one of these applications. So part of why I like starting with that story is I think it's an interesting story unto itself. I think the debate between Marshall and Douglas, you know, two pretty sort of liberal justices, but who were at loggerheads in this dispute, is a pretty fascinating story about whether your job as a Supreme Court justice is fidelity to what you think the law is or fidelity to the institution. And I also think that Douglas, in his second opinion, when he's criticizing Marshall's denouement, when he's dissenting, lays out a lot of what have become objections about the shadow docket in general which is how difficult it is for the court to act carefully and 
to Douglas's view properly, when it's acting quickly without the normal deliberative process, without conference, where the justices all get together to talk about cases. It's, it, it's ironic to me, Jack, that the process that Marshall sort of informally invokes to end that dispute becomes de rigueur really in the next 10 years or so. And that Douglas's objections to that process actually, I think, get lost to history. It's it's a big part of why I think the story is 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 well begun there. Yeah, it's an excellent story. And also isn't wasn't this the event that led the court to end adjournment and stay in session all year long? So it's part of it. I mean, you know, there's it's interesting. The the historical record's a bit unclear as what the exact provocation was, but there were two different things going on at the same time. The first is this episode, which really, I think, left a lot of folks inside the court with a pretty bad taste in their mouths. And the second, and this is a, actually a big part of the the story that the book tries to tell, is you know the explosion of the death penalty after 1976. So shortly thereafter, you know, when the Supreme Court brings back the death penalty, it brings back a death penalty with a whole bunch of new constitutional issues, many of which only arise at the end stage of litigation, which in turn provokes a flood of emergency applications from death row prisoners, from states seeking to unfreeze executions. And so, Jack, I think it's those two developments together that really pushed the court in the early 1980s to, to start dealing with all of these emergency applications, or at least the ones that are remotely divisive. The way that you know Marshall had sort of done in, indirectly, have the full court stay in session, have the full court resolve them, but Jack, do it without oral argument and almost always without any explanation. Right. So that in a, that's a gr- nice tie up because that's the point that the court basically institutionalized deciding emergency requests as a court, and they did so by ending adjournment being in session all the time, and that you know, was not obviously the right step. That may have been a fraught step. I, I think that's right. I mean, I, you know, listen, I, I think, Jack, folks can debate and, and folks ought to debate what is the normatively ideal way for the court to act in this context. I think what's really important, and, and this is perhaps the, the most unique, I think, contribution the book tries to make to the historical understanding, is that the court was, you know, motivated slash impelled to make these changes in response to the flood of capital cases and last minute applications in capital cases. So that I think what was, Jack, for the better part of 35 years, a death penalty specific series of practices didn't get a lot of attention as such because everyone assumed they were only about the death penalty. And so when in the mid 2010s, we start to see the court using these same procedures and following these same norms in cases that are about, you know, immigration policies or um, elections or COVID mitigation measures, right? Like the the court can say accurately and honestly, this is how we've always done emergency applications going back to the 1980s. And folks could say in response, but those were all in death cases and this is different. Right. Okay, good. So that's an excellent introduction. I want to come back to the emergency docket, but I want to deal with two topics that I think are absolutely fundamental that go to the shadow docket more broadly that you deal with well in the book. The first one is, and I think this is absolutely of crucial importance to understanding the modern court's power, to understanding modern constitutional law, and to understanding modern federal court's doctrine. And that is how the court went from having, at the outset in 1789, 
basically a fully mandatory jurisdiction with no control over its docket, to today where it's practically the opposite, where the court has plenary control over its docket, i.e. deciding which cases to hear in what posture, when, how, etc., including merits cases. It can decide what merits cases it wants. Just talk to us, and you have a great chapter on this. Talk to us about that transition and, and its significance. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, this is actually, this is my favorite chapter to write in the book. It's chapter one. I, I As you know, I assign it now in my federal courts classes. Sorry, federal court students. Um, so this is, you know, the history of certiorari, which we talked about a bit already, is actually, I think, a really powerful way of telling the history of the court. So, you know, for its first hundred some odd years as an institution, the court has to decide every case it has jurisdiction to decide. And what that means is very little, right, until the Civil War, because the court only has 55, 60, maybe 65 cases that it gets every year. Actually, until the Civil War, most of what the justices are doing is riding circuit, is acting as circuit judges in the, in the intermediate courts. What, what changes after the Civil War is a series of developments that just explode the court's docket. You have the Reconstruction Amendments, obviously, which raise a ton of messy and important questions for the courts. You have Congress radically expanding federal jurisdiction to run to lots of disputes the courts would never hear before. The general federal question jurisdiction, the idea that federal courts can hear all cases arising under federal law doesn't come to be until 1875. And, you know, Jack, as you know, there's this fundamental shift in the federal government itself, where the federal government is regulating far more aspects of everyday life um, right, starting in and shortly after the Civil War. So that by 1890, the court has somewhere north of 1,800 cases on its docket. It's three years behind. It's totally overwhelmed. And really, all it's doing is acting as a Supreme Court of Appeals, just, you know, brief, quick opinions resolving each case quickly as they come before them. It's a dispute, right? It's a dispute resolution court at that point. Exactly so. Um, right. The, the Supreme Court's job, I mean, you know, we still read, we teach the canonical constitutional law cases of that era, but those are almost accidents compared to what the courts do on a daily basis. There's a, there's a, there's a small attempt to reduce some of the docket pressure in 1891 um, by giving the court discretion over four categories of cases that no one really cared about, but that doesn't stem the tide. So that by the early 1900s, the court is just totally overworked. And one of the people who notices this and who makes the biggest public stink about this um, is William Howard Taft, who, you know, at this point in time had been a circuit judge. He had been the Solicitor General of the United States. And now I think he is President Roosevelt's commissioner for the Philippines. And when Taft runs for president in 1908, one of the things he talks about is reforming the court. Because from his perspective, right, the court needs to be above the fray. The court should be, Jack, to take that the language, right, the more of a law declaration court as opposed to a dispute resolution court. The court should be functioning more as a constitutional court than as a Supreme Court of Appeals. And so it's it's actually Taft, among others, but Taft first and foremost, who really leads the charge for the expansion of certiorari. And when he, you know, becomes chief justice in 1921, something he worked very, very hard to engineer, he really picks back up the mantle and is instrumental in leading Congress to eventually adopt what's formally the Judiciary Act of 1925, informally known as the Judges' Bill, because the court wrote it. And the Judges' Bill gave the court total discretion 
over just about every case coming up through the federal courts. State courts, the, the Supreme Court still had to hear the appeals, but lower federal courts, the Supreme Court could pick and choose which cases it was going to hear, um, no matter what the issue was, no matter what the lower courts had ruled. You know, this was a huge part of Taft's mission to give the court autonomy and, and more independence. And why? Explain why. What was his theory of the court's role? So, you know, Taft, I, I mean, Taft was first and foremost a judicial supremacist, um, right? He thought that, you know, the, the court's job was to be the supreme expositor of the Constitution and everything else was secondary. And so he thought that for the court to play that role, it needed to not be bothered with small technical disputes of little impact, right? With sort of one-off cases that weren't going to stand for any broader legal principles. And so his thesis was that discretion brings with it power because the justices could then pick and choose not just which cases to hear, but they could pick cases that would allow them to prioritize um, fashioning nationwide legal principles, right? Uh, interpreting the Constitution on a nationwide basis. And one of the things he does shortly after the 1925 Act is he goes one step further. And he says, not only can we pick and choose which cases we're going to hear, but we can pick and choose which issues we're going to decide within those cases. So it's Taft who inaugurates what's now known as limited grants of certiorari, the idea that petitions for review to the Supreme Court should ask the justices to review not the entire case, but specific questions. And the justices can then pick and choose which questions they actually want to resolve. And this was all from Taft's perspective about the same thing that led him to push for the court to have its own building which is that a court with control of its docket and a court with its own building was a court that was, you know, at least the equal of the political branches and a court that would be able to assert the full amount of constitutional authority that it was granted. Okay. And so 1925, the judge's bill was a big move in this direction of giving the court control. The court asserted control, as you discuss, even on its mandatory appellate docket and its original jurisdiction docket, it, it basically read in discretion of sorts there as well. Finally, in 1988, Congress basically gives the court full plenary discretionary certiorari control over its docket. Yeah, I mean, the only the only remaining category of mandatory appellate jurisdiction is for appeals from what are known as three-judge district courts. So these are sort of the weird little federal courts that Congress uses to combine the functions of the district court and the court of appeals. And Jack, as you know, the only categories today where three judge district courts are used are certain campaign finance cases. So like Ted Cruz's case from last term or certain reapportionment disputes about congressional redistricting. And that's it. Everything else is within the court's discretion, not just the cases, but the issues. So it can take as many cases as it wants or as few cases as it wants. It can craft those cases as it wants with rewriting or narrowing questions presented. It does all of this within its discretion. The rules on this provide guidance, but the courts aren't terribly bound by that. So I can't tell, I couldn't really tell from the book whether it seems like you think this is a bad development. And let me just get the full question out. And it, it is a, it's definitely a development that massively enhances the power and discretion of the court. I mean, I think Several people said, I think you quote Hartnett or someone who's saying this is in the modern court was born in 1925 when it got control over its docket. And lots of things that happen, you know, it basically means the court can 
you know, you, you can see the civil rights revolution as a product of the court being able to pick and choose the cases that it wanted to ignore the cases it didn't want. And importantly, and I'm just repeating what you said in the book, you can correct me when I get it wrong. It also means that the court can decide cases, perhaps with far reaching impacts, without having to deal with the consequences in the sense of having to deal with tons of follow on cases, because they can just deny cert on those and let the lower courts work it out. So just expand on that, correct that, and, and just talk about the huge significance that the rise of the court's control over its docket has. So, I mean, I mean everything you said is right. I, I guess I am, Jack, I'm, I'm profoundly ambivalent about whether certiorari is a good thing or a bad thing. I, I think the most important thing to say, though, is it's a thing. Yeah. And, and that I really think that, you know, I mean, this was it, was, it was revelatory for me to realize just how little time we spend in law school even in classes about constitutional law or even federal courts, right? Teaching our students the history of certiorari, because I think it just, it explains so much of, you know, folks look at the Supreme Court today and ask themselves, you know, how did this court become so powerful? Was it always this way? Like, how is it that the Supreme Court seemingly has the ability to weigh in on every single, you know, divisive issue in American public discourse? And I think certiorari is a big part of the reason why. The flip side, I mean, the, the the tricky part is that, you know, the docket pressure is still there. I mean, the court, even in a quiet year, right, the court is still getting somewhere north of 5,000 to 6,000 petitions for certiorari. And I don't think anyone could say with a straight face that the court is in a position or should have to resolve all of those appeals. I, I think the, tr- the the question, and at least the place where I would love for there to be a richer debate is whether Congress has gone too far in the other direction. Um, so if we look, Jack, at the the number of cases the court has decided each of the last four terms, I mean, right, including the current term, the court's going to be under 60 total merits decisions each of the last four terms, um, a number it hadn't gone below before 2019 since 1864. And so, I, you know, I, I think two things can be true, right? One is that the court has to have some mechanism for separating out the cases it's going to decide from the cases it's not. But that, too, we ought to all understand how the current mechanism for that has given the court a massive amount of power, power that the court exercises through the quintessential shadow docket order, through unsigned, unexplained orders that can often have enormous ramifications, even if they're not formally precedential. And so I guess, you know, I'm happy if everyone at least starts from the proposition that we ought to talk more about certiorari, even if reasonable folks might disagree about whether the current state of affairs is ideal. Okay, good. One more question about certiorari, then we'll get to the emergency docket. And that is, and again, another wonderful chapter about sort of questioning the conventional wisdom, at least in some quarters, that the vast majority of of certiorari petitions are denied. And the conventional wisdom is, or at least the, the common understanding is, that a denial of certiorari means nothing other than that the court decided not to take the case, and it doesn't have any implications of that other than leaving that case, the case below in place, leaving that decision in place. But you have a great chapter describing and using Obergefell as, as your central example about how there's a lots of strategic, many strategic considerations that can go into a cert denial. And then it's too simplistic to say that a cert denial is kind of a meaningless act. 
right? Is that the right? Is that a the right yep. setup for that? Yeah, and and because the what the what the same I mean the so Obergefell versus Hodges. This is the Supreme Court in 2015 saying that there's a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. And so the the common sort of view is that it's Obergefell that legalizes same-sex marriage on a national basis. The reality is a little more complicated. By the time the court decides Obergefell, same-sex marriage was legal in 37 states. There are only 13 um, that were left to be directly affected by Obergefell. Jack, half of that, as the book documents, um, right, half of those 37 were, you know, on their own, um, right, where the either the state democratic process or the state Supreme Court as a matter of state law had legalized same-sex marriage. But half were because lower court decisions that had blocked state marriage bans were left intact, were not reviewed by the Supreme Court, right? That there's a, there's a series of cert denials on the first Monday of the October 2014 term that basically leads directly to the legalization of same-sex marriage in a bunch of states. Jack, not because the cert denials were precedential, but because the effect of the cert denial was to allow for a final judgment in a whole bunch of states in federal courts that had blocked those marriage bans. So those those injunctions went into effect as a result of the cert denials. And you know, part of why I think that's so evocative um, is because it shows that, like, yeah, even without formally creating a precedent, a cert denial can have a massive impact on the ground. The, the marriage cases I think are especially useful because you can actually directly measure that impact by just telling the chronology of when the court denied cert and then when those states started allowing marriages. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed 
from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yes, and, and it's it's even more than that because, I mean, as you point out, the justices, some of the justices who ultimately ended up dissenting in a Burgerfell could have, there were four justices who dissented, and those justices could have voted to grant in those cases. Yeah. So, I mean, right. So, so if nothing else, we know that at least some of the justices were voting strategically, which, you know, Jack, I mean, anyone who I think follows the court closely will not be surprised to learn that there's strategic behavior in the cert process. But I think for folks who don't follow the court as closely, like here's a very visible example of, of yep. why and how that happens. Exactly. So here's my question about that. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is it a necessary evil? I mean, again, I, I don't think you take a position on this, but you know, the conventional understanding, at least my view, is that it would be impossible and, and unwise for the court to provide opinions for why it denies certiorari. That would defeat the point of having discretion. But 
you know, a blanket denial can often be used strategically to achieve all sorts of consequences in the lower courts. And is that just a necessary, is it just a necessary product of the system? Is it something we should worry about? I think the answer to both is yes, <laughs> that it's a necessary product of the system and it's something we should worry about. Um, like, you know, I, again, I, I think, you know, I, I don't have a strong view as to whether there are more attractive ways for the court to, you know, sort of shape its docket. I mean, you know, Jack, I think everyone would agree that a large percentage of the cases the court is asked to review are cases that the justices don't need to review. That right there, the law is settled, the law is not moving, the petitions are you know clearly meritless. The tricky part is that there are cases every term where the justices are denying review not because the case is unworthy, right, but because by denying review something is accomplished. Right. <laughs> and right. and I just I don't know how you can have one without the other, which goes back to why I think it's just important that when we talk about the court. When you know people like you and I are teaching our students, when journalists are writing about the court, we don't just sort of accept the denominator, right? The the number of cases the court has granted as this you know manna from heaven, um, but rather we understand that like the the court's docket is itself a result of very specific motivated choices that the justices have made that ought to, that ought to sort of inf- reinforce how we think about what the court is doing as a whole. So, you know, when we talk about like how many cases are unanimous versus how many cases are dividing the justices, you know, it's not the norm to contextualize that by saying of the cases the court chose to hear um, and the issues the court chose to decide within those cases. So if nothing else, what I'm hoping to do, at least in that part of the book, is change how we talk about the court. I don't know that there are obvious reforms to come out of that, although maybe the more we actually do talk about this part of the court's work, the more that we actually might think there are some small things we ought to do. Well, Steve, let me just pay you the compliment at this point that I was going to pay you at the end of our discussion. You've accomplished that. I mean, this book and the stuff you've been doing the last several years will take get some credit for this, Will Bode, but it you've accomplished that big picture, vitally important point, which is there's been an obsessive focus on the merits docket as if that were the only important thing the court did. There's all sorts of other stuff going on on the non-merits docket, whether it's dials, certiorari, emergency orders, summary reversals that have giant consequences for American law and for Supreme Court jurisprudence that has just been underanalyzed, if not ignored and underexplored. And Whatever else, the many other things your book accomplishes, I, I just, it's clear already that that is no longer the case, that we've, we're now in a period where people are going to be paying, paying attention to this stuff. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I, that that's, that's music to my ears. I, um, one of the things about this book that I think you know, Jack, is you know, I'm hoping that even folks who are not inclined to agree with me about some of the criticisms will still agree that the, sort of the broader points about understanding the court are, are worth making. I'm one of those people. <laughs> I don't agree with all of your criticism, but I do definitely believe that on that bigger picture point that you've done something vitally important. Thank okay. You. Well, I appreciate that. Let, let's, let's switch to the emergency docket. And just to yeah. review for people who don't fully understand these terms. So you, at the beginning, you defined the shadow docket, which is the name of the book, is basically all of the Supreme Court's docket that's not on the merits. And that can include things like cert denieds. That can include things like this person can be in uh, have oral argument time. That can include uh, summary reversals. 
But where the focus of attention has been and the focus of criticism and controversy has been is on the so-called emergency docket component of the shadow docket. So just again, I just want everyone to understand what we're talking about. Just to, just tell us again what that is and then I'll ask you about it. Yeah. So, I mean, emergency applications can come in a number of forms. So let's back up a second. Almost all of these cases start with a very early request for an injunction. A party is challenging a government policy, whether a state or federal policy, and they want an injunction. They want a court order blocking the policy. So there are two possibilities. Either the the trial court says, yes, I'm going to block the policy, or no, I'm not going to block it. What happens to usually precipitate an emergency application is whoever loses that first decision in the trial court seeks some kind of temporary relief on appeal. So if the trial court has blocked the policy, the government goes to the appeals court and says, we want you to unblock it. And if the trial court doesn't block the policy, then the plaintiff goes to the appeals court and says, hey, you should block this while we challenge the denial of our motion to block it. This all can happen very quickly, and it can go to the Supreme Court very quickly. So that the norm, uh, norm is not the right word, the sort of the typical emergency application the court gets these days is either for a stay or for an injunction pending appeal, basically asking the court to intervene to you know, put back on hold or put back into place um, the thing that's being challenged. Historically, Jack, as you know, there weren't that many of these. The Cambodia case was an outlier. Some of that might be just sort of a function of what litigation challenging government policies used to look like, right? The, the real explosion in emergency applications comes, as we talked about a bit earlier, in the early 1980s and almost entirely in the death penalty space where these are now applications from death row prisoners seeking to block executions or from states seeking to unblock them. And there are a lot of those. I mean, there are terms in the early 1980s when the court is granting 20, 22 of these, um, which, you know, historical by any historical sort of comparison is, is an insane amount. But Jack, if you talk to anyone who clerked on the court, right, between 1980 and 2015, that's what they think of as the emergency docket. They think the emergency docket is the death docket. And, you know, the shift that really happens in the mid-2010s, I think it starts before Trump, but it really becomes visible once the Trump administration comes to office, is that these same emergency applications are used for, you know, sort of nationwide policy disputes, where lower courts will, say, block a Trump administration policy like the travel ban, and you know the executive branch goes to the Supreme Court and says, we would like you to unblock this policy while the case works its way up to you. And you know, there's a lot to say about those cases. The book says a lot about those cases. The one thing I think is undeniable is that was a shift, um, right? The notion that emergency applications were appropriate fodder for just whether policy should go into effect or not is not how those were approached right before the mid-2010s and is now fairly commonplace, especially for divisive, for, you know, politically controversial policies, everything from, you know, the student loan program to like the Title 42 immigration policy. And how much of it, you address this at length, and you've been very subtle about this, how much of that growth starting in 2015 uh, has to do with the rise of so-called universal injunctions? And maybe you should explain what those are. Sure. Um, So universal injunctions, often, I think, unhelpfully called nationwide injunctions. So the Jack, the typical injunction, as you know, basically says the defendant has to cease 
doing something to the plaintiff. And what makes a universal injunction universal is that it says, hey, the defendant has to cease doing something, period, so that the defendant is precluded from acting against anyone, including non-plaintiffs. What that means in context is a nation, uh, sort of a universal injunction against a federal policy blocks the federal policy universally, meaning the government can't carry out the policy at all anymore. These are a relatively new phenomenon. There's obviously a rich debate among law professors about just how new they are. As you know, I, I have the perhaps idiosyncratic view that we ought to also talk about the demise of nationwide class actions, which used yep. to do some of the same work, where you could certify a nationwide class to challenge a government policy and it would have the same effect if you got an injunction. I mean, you basically yeah. think that the universal injunction is, I think you argue that it's kind of a substitute for this. I mean, not a perfect one, yeah, um, right? Kind, I mean, of, kind of. Yes. Yeah. Right. And and you know, and, and listen, I, I don't mean to take a, a strong view in the sort of the merits of that debate. I think there's no question that the court, at least in part, was reacting to this perception that these injunctions were on the rise, at least early in the Trump cases. The the problem is that so many of even the Trump cases end up not being about universal injunctions, and then once the Biden administration comes to office. You know, even if you could explain how often the court was intervening to freeze nationwide injunctions against Trump policies, Jack, presumably those explanations are about deference to the executive and they're about, you know, the irreparable harm the executive branch suffers whenever its policies are blocked. That should have predicted, right, a similar success rate for the Biden administration when its policies were subject to nationwide injunctions. We just haven't seen that so far. So, well, we saw it in the light. we saw it in the abortion pill case, didn't we? Yes, um, we did. Um, I think there are reasons why the abortion case might be a bit of an outlier. But in the immigration context, right? I mean, the yeah. MPP is a good example of this. The Remain in Mexico asylum policy it's subject to a nationwide injunction from a district court in Texas. The Fifth Circuit doesn't issue a stay. The Supreme Court also denies a stay over public dissents from the three Democratic appointees. And then Jack, as you know, on the merits, the court sides with the Biden administration. So yeah. I, I, don't, I don't mean to overcomplicate this. There's clearly a connection between how often the Trump administration was being subjected to universal injunctions and the willingness of at least some of the justices to intervene in such novel and aggressive ways in emergency applications. I, I guess I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptic about just how direct that correlation is. Yeah, I think it's look, it's complicated. You you lay out some of the complications. So there are two questions here. I'm going to separate out two questions because I, th I think we can make this a clearer discussion. The first question is why were there such a huge increase in requests on the emergency docket in the Supreme Court starting in 2015, but really getting going through Trump? On that, I think that there are several explanations, and, I, and it could just be it could be an accident of history having to do with. A, the increasing prevalence of nationwide injunctions, especially in response B, to lots of controversial Trump administration executive orders and regulations. At the same time, C, there was an unusual gap in the judicial attitudes of the lower courts and the Supreme Court, which brought you know, the likelihood of the merits question uh, to the fore, making that more important. There was also during the same period, all of the COVID emergency stuff. There was also the novel and maybe one-off question of the federal death penalty. And then all this stuff, this is just my view, all of this stuff takes on a life of its own. And then we start seeing more and more cases at the margins because everybody's doing it. And I think the court, 
I think the court, it's pretty clear the court let this get out of control at a point. I think it's pulling back now, and we can talk about that. But I think there were explanations, plausible explanations, for why we saw an increase in the docket. I think I agree with just about all of that, <laughs> um, right? So, so you don't have to. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, I, I want to push back on a couple pieces. I, I, there, listen, there's no question that there was this remarkable confluence of events that had a lot to do with a lot of what we saw, right? COVID being a big part of that, the number of election-related COVID cases, the reinstitution of the federal death penalty, even for six months. I mean, all of these are obviously catalysts. I guess there, there's one point that I think Justice Alito has made, and, and I, I fear is wanting for evidence. So Alito has made this point multiple times that you know we were just responding to the stuff that came in, and you, know, you can't blame us for that. I think part of the problem, Jack, is that in the Trump cases, the court intervened in ways that it never had before, in ways that I've been critical of in the book criticizes, right, for sort of not really taking the underlying principles seriously, and in ways that I think clearly signaled, as you suggest, to all the relevant stakeholders that the court was open for business yes. um, when it came to emergency applications. And, and I just don't think we can take the court off the hook for that. Oh, I'm not. I'm not. Just to be clear, I'm not yeah. taking the court off the hook. I think, I mean, I have a different view of you, and maybe we can get to this later, of this, the role of the Solicitor General in the Trump administration. But I don't think the court can be taken off the hook because, you know, just from a 40,000-foot level, it wasn't being rigorous in either in all across the run of cases and there were dozens of them it wasn't being rigorous in in articulating and applying the appropriate standards it wasn't obvious that it was uh acting consistently across every case and more importantly as you just said it just seemed like you know they were open for business and accepting of these things i think they kind of invited them yep. i think they there's some pushback going on now among the people in the middle of the court so, so I'm not definitely not letting the court off the hook for this. I think it, I think it takes, I think it deserves to the extent there's a problem here. I think the court deserves almost all of the blame. But let's we haven't really talked about the problem. So, in a nutshell, what is wrong? And you have several points here. What is the like the main criticism or cluster of criticisms about emergency docket decision making? So I, I guess the to me right the this is this is a little tricky. So I'm going to try to sort of tie it all together. The court is always going to have to have a mechanism for deciding things in an emergency. That's not the problem. I think w- the problem that emerged from the pattern of the court's decision making, especially between 2017 and 2021, because I, I agree with you, Jack, I think I think the court has already toned it down a fair amount, is, is the confluence of, I think, four points. So the first is the court is intervening in ways that it never had before, right? So in ways that are having nationwide effects unlike prior cases, right? The second is that the court is doing this in a context in which it's not explaining the seeming disconnect that you alluded to, right? Between what the court was doing and what the lower courts were doing, right? Imagine if the court gave guidance early in the Trump cases that nationwide injunctions should be the exception, not the rule, that, you know, courts were making the same category error in how they were approaching. So, I mean, there's guidance the court could, by not providing guidance, the court complicates the scenario. Again, those two by themselves wouldn't be a problem, but then add in the last two parts. Third, the court's interventions are inconsistent, where if you actually try to divine the, if you look at the principles the parties were invoking, 
for why the court should intervene. The court is not applying those consistently across parties with different partisan valences. So the Trump administration fares better than the Biden administration. Red states fare better than blue states on claims that looked very similar. And then fourth, and this is, I think, what ties it all together, for the first time, the court treats at least some of these unsigned, unexplained rulings as precedents, where the lower courts are bound to follow what really are tea leaves. I mean, you know, Jack, my favorite example of this, as you know, is South Bay 2, the, the February 2021 injunction the court issues blocking many of California's COVID restrictions on religious services. And, you know, that decision might have been right, it might have been wrong. There's no majority opinion. And yet in the aftermath of that ruling, the court issues a whole bunch of orders vacating lower court decisions in light of South Bay 2. Um, there's one standout case called Gateway City Church, where the court says the Ninth Circuit's decision was clearly erroneous because it failed to account for. And you know the, the result was clearly dictated by South Bay 2. So it's the confluence of how the court was behaving, Jack, across the mine run of these cases that I think really drives home how the behavior sort of ran so far off the rails. Yeah, so I agree with you completely on the court basically chastising a lower court for not following one of its unexplained shadow docket decisions. I mean, that was, for me, that was the low point of the courts being unprincipled during this period. But to go back to whether the court was being inconsistent across the run of cases, I mean, it's hard to tell, isn't it? Because likelihood of success on the merits is part of the test and maybe a very large part of the test. And that could be, and many people think is driving these decisions. Now, I think you might think that that's true, but it shouldn't be driving these decisions. So I, I guess I think two things, right? I mean, so first, likely on the merits, I think is actually hard to square with some of the Trump era cases. Because I mean, if, if you actually look at the Trump cases, this is, this is a statistic I didn't even believe when I first generated it. Um, of all of the Trump policies that get to the shadow docket, at least in the immigration space, the only one that ever makes it back on the merits is Travel Ban 3.0. Every other policy either goes away or you know the case is pending in the Supreme Court when Biden comes to office and gets mooted out. And the court does end up sort of going in on the merits with the Trump administration in Travel Ban 3.0. But Jack, in all these other cases, right, there there was never any conclusive statement that the merits were as the administration argued. Put that aside, you know, even if that's that doesn't matter, the court would have upheld all these policies on the merits. But, which um, I think they would have, actually. So I, I, Not, I don't know. Impossible to know. Impossible to yes. know. But, but to the extent that yes. they were issuing stays or to the extent that we know what the issues were, I think there's a pretty good chance that they would have ruled in the merits. And I'll note that I don't think the government in the two big cases that at least I may be wrong about this, the two big cases that the government lost on these policies, the census case and the DACA case, I don't think they sought emergency relief in those cases, did they? Uh, I don't believe so. Although at least in I, I, those cases were a little different, right? Because I don't think there were, I think in the census case, there was an injunction, Although it was a different, it was an injunction about testimony, not about the merits. I mean, so, some of those right. cases also moved so quickly that they didn't need stays. But so, but where I was going, Jack, was but now look at MPP, right? So, you, you know, explain, explain what MPP is, right? So MPP is the uh, Migrant Protection Protocol, it's the Remain in Mexico Asylum Program, which President Biden. It was a Trump era policy that President Biden tried to um, rescind, 
The rescission is blocked by a nationwide injunction by a federal judge in Texas. The Supreme Court, over dissents from the three Democratic appointees, refuses to stay the injunction. But then Jack sides with the Biden administration on the merits, right? So if if this were all about the merits or even a strong weight for the merits with light, with irreparable harm doing some of the work, then the non-stay in the MPP case makes no sense because the Biden administration had all of the same arguments about irreparable harm. They had all the same arguments about balancing the equities and they won on the merits, right? And so I just... Nowhere in the book do I try to suggest that all of these decisions were like lawless. The point is just that the, the pattern, it's the pattern looks bad when what should have been predictors for neutral application of principles across cases with different partisan valences turn out not to be accurate. Right. Okay. And but let me ask you this question. Isn't the problem, and this is one of your main points, and this is a transparency point, it's just hard to know, frankly, because the court in so many of these decisions, they just give us orders with no explanation yep. or they give us orders with a paragraph of explanation. And it's just extremely hard to know, even if we're being charitable, whether and how or why the court is being consistent precisely because, and this is a central criticism of the shadow docket, they're deciding important things without explaining why. Isn't That's that right. at the core of the problem? Yes. And so and so this is where like even folks who are more willing to give the justices the benefit of the doubt than I might be should still agree that it would be better for everybody if the court, at least where possible, endeavored to provide more of an explanation. Yes. OK. And I, I believe that, too. I think a lot of people believe that. But just to push it a little further and to demonstrate how difficult this is, you know, that demand is kind of in tension with emergency order decision-making. And so, again, I'm not saying it shouldn't be done, no, no, but no. it means that it, it pushes emergency orders to be more like merits orders. And that started to happen sometimes. I mean, And the court has moved. It really has reformed itself in the last several yep. years. It's moved. Yep. I'm just going to list things that are in the book. It's shifted some cases from the emergency docket to the merits docket. Several people, including you, suggested it do that as a way of legitimating these decisions. It started to give lengthier explanations for its its orders. It's, it's given opinions related to orders with lengthier explanations, including standards and some important emergency rulings. It's in the last, you know, certainly, I don't know, if it's two, three, four years, it seemed a little less trigger happy in intervening in these cases. You've got Barrett and Kavanaugh seeming to signal that they're not going to be so quick in giving emergency relief. You've got oral argument on emergency applications. There's much more publicity on this issue. It seems like to me that there was a period of, and I'm just being charitable, confusion, uncertainty, and maybe a lack of principle in some cases, but that the court is reforming itself. Is, is that fair? Um, yes, I, I think everything you said is fair. I, I think the you know you and I might quibble at the margins about how much the court has reformed itself, but I don't think anyone can dispute that there have been reforms. And indeed, a, another data point for that is how many orders now are provoking dissents from some combination of Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch. Yeah, um, exactly. Right, where where they're on the wrong side. I mean, I think Justice Alito's dissent in the Mifepristone case, I think, is very much a you know something happened, and I'm I'm upset about it. Yeah, definitely. I guess what I go back to, though, is I think there's a larger point here that even the reforms are consistent with, which is 
not all of this, right, was just sort of like these cases fell on us, right? So one, you know, I, I'm very the the subtitle of the book, right, sort of um, is a bit provocative. It says, right, how the Supreme Court uses stealth rulings to amass power. That's not the provocative part and yeah. undermine the republic. Right. Um, I was going to ask you about that because that strikes me as hyperbolic. <laughs> so I, I mean, I, I know it does, and and I know that it will for many. And I guess this is where I think. You know, I am a little more sharp elbowed in my criticisms of the court than than even those than, than those who I think agree with many of the institutional critiques. Because I think if you look at, for example, the election cases where you see the court intervening in contexts that favor Republicans and not in contexts that screamed out for intervention but favored Democrats. If you look at the COVID cases, right, where the court is, you know, making new law in a case like Tandon versus Newsom, while it has the chance, while there are literally cases before it on the merits docket that would have allowed it to do the same thing. I do think that there is, and, and we might be past it now, Jack, I think that's a distinct possibility. I think there was a period of willfulness where the court was doing at least some of this, if not intentionally, then at least knowingly where it was using emergency procedures, Jack, for disputes that weren't emergencies. And, you know, you and I and everyone might draw the line between a true emergency and a non-emergency in different places, fine. But I think one of the real problems is that we've lost the thread of what is a genuine emergency and what isn't. You know, if someone's about to be executed, like that's an emergency. Um, The election is tomorrow. That's an emergency. The state of Arizona can't carry out its law I, you know, forgive me if this is a, a weird view. I, I don't think that's an emergency. Yeah, that. so that, it depends, it seems to me. I mean, there is a, a view that, I mean, emergency, it's a word that's so overused and um, it really has a very narrow meaning and maybe that maybe doesn't apply to any of these things except maybe the death penalty. But, you know, if the government, whether it's the Biden administration or the Trump administration, has an, a policy, an important policy that it's implemented, and it's been shut down by a single district court, and it's going to mean that the government is simply not going to have a chance to basically get its policy implemented. And again, it could be Biden or Trump uh, for two or three years if the normal processes take their course. That strikes me as a very important thing that the federal court system should be able to deal with, whether it's called an emergency or not. But, but having said that, I agree with your basic point that, as I said a couple of times, I think the court lost the thread, was being too aggressive on this stuff. I would say, especially in some of the religious liberty cases, for some of the reasons you stated that they were really getting into the merits and changing legal principles, it seemed, without adequate deliberation or normal deliberation. That was the context in which they were issuing orders to the lower courts to abide by an underexplained emergency order and the like. So I, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you that the court went too far, but I think it's important to acknowledge, and, and I think you get credit for this, Steve, that the court has is aware of this now. I mean, you know, Kagan has been highlighting it a lot, especially I think her dissents got more yep. traction yep. than some of the earlier ones. The chief joining some of those dissents but I think we're going to a better place. And this this just leads me, though, to the, the last big picture set of questions to ask. And that is, okay, what should we do? I mean, your your reform proposals in the end are, I don't mean this as a criticism because I don't have better ideas. They seemed a little tepid and um, maybe tepid is not the right word, tentative. Yeah. 
And it's it this it seems to me that emergent the emergency orders docket is such there are so many factors that come in the form of standards and lend themselves to standards and not rules. I.e., it's very hard to come up with a set of rules to deal with all the varieties of emergencies that might arise in different procedural postures with different things below happening. Could be a stay, could be an injunction, could be the district court did one thing, the court of appeals did another, could be a state ruling could be a federal ruling. I think it's very hard to come up with firm rules here about how to deal with this. And you didn't really propose firm rules for how to deal with this. No, I mean, so so I actually think, I mean, this is actually a great way to tie things together. I, your point about the sort of governments whose, you know, important nationwide policies are thwarted by single district judges is exactly how I think we ought to be talking about this. Because to me, that's a problem but it's a problem that ought not to have the principal mechanism for redress be an emergency application of the Supreme Court. And so part of why I think my reform proposals are tentative is because I think part of how we ought to talk about the shadow docket, how we ought to talk about the court in general, is by talking about the shape of the court's docket as a whole. And you know what Congress should do, frankly, Jack, what the court should encourage Congress to do to take pressure off of the shadow docket. Um, and to sort of to, to to provide mechanisms for getting these kinds of cases to the court for plenary review faster, um, whether it's to bring back three-judge district courts or just to expedite merits review of nationwide injunctions, um, to sort of to think about context in which we actually don't want the court treating as an emergency a case that isn't, right? Like, I just, there are lots of ways to skin this cat. That's a weird metaphor, but, um, yeah. right. But it, but it seems to me that the, the, the first play, I mean, part of why I think the reform proposals are tentative is because like the book itself is the reform, right? I mean, like yeah, getting the public invested in this conversation, having the kinds of conversations you and I are having today, that was my first goal, right? Was to just sort of have us appreciably talking about this part of the Supreme Court's work in any conversation about the court as an institution. And, you know, I don't dispute for a second that reasonable folks are going to disagree about the ideal ways to clean up all of these processes. My point is just that, like, as soon as we started talking about them, it was pretty clear even to some of the justices that they needed to be cleaned up. Yeah. And and so the to me the, the 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 reason why some of the specific proposals are tentative is because the big proposal is that we just need to talk about this because just talking about it I think reveals problems that Jack I think folks from across the the ideological spectrum can agree to. Yeah, I think everybody agrees that looks at this from the outside that we don't have at least for the last five years taken in the aggregate we have not had the ideal uh, process not, the ideal mechanisms in place. Everybody agrees with that. One thing we haven't touched on is how the rise of the emergency orders docket and the shattered docket more generally in importance in the last seven or eight years has been accompanied by uh, an ever smaller merits docket. I want you to talk about what you think the relationship to that is. And then just finally, you said this once or twice, but I want you to end with it. Your bottom line point is really about, you know, this is just something that can't be ignored. The, the, The shattered docket is in many ways as important if not more so than the merits docket. So if you could just comment on those and then we'll wrap it up. Sure. So, I mean, I I think that the the short version is, you know, it's correlation, not necessarily causation, but when the court is spending so much more time on high profile divisive emergency applications, you know, there were last term, I think there were north of 35 applications from which at least one justice publicly dissented, right? That 
that's a finite resource, Jack, right? That's consuming resources that the court doesn't have a limitless supply of. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that as we've seen more and more attention and bigger and bigger rulings on the shadow docket in the last five, six years, we've seen this decline you know, from 70 cases a year, 75 cases a year into the 50s on the merits docket. And I don't think that's healthy. I mean, I, you know, even I, the sort of the liberal progressive law professor, think that this court ought to be doing more, <laughs> which I know strikes folks as weird. What that really dovetails, though, with is the, the broader point of the book, which is that we should talk about the court as an institution holistically. We should talk about its relationship with the other branches holistically. We should talk about the nature of the court's power and the disputes the justices are choosing to hear holistically, because that's how we talk about institutions. And the more that we think about, cover, and teach the court as the sum of its merits decisions, you know, the neutral point is that's just inaccurate and it's incomplete. The more sort of cynical point is that's actually playing into the court's own hands and sort of reaffirming that, that you know, it, 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 is, it is removing from public view how much even that slice of the court's work is carefully controlled and curated by the justices. And so it seems to me that like, you know, whatever folks think we should privilege and prioritize when it comes to reforming the Supreme Court. I just want to start by having the same conversation about it. And I hope that the book will empower folks who may not have known some of this history, who may not know these details, and even the folks who do, right, to sort of to think about how to better talk about the court, even if we might reach different conclusions. Yep. That's a great place to end, Steve. You've definitely accomplished that in this book. Congratulations. Thanks, Jack. I really appreciate it. And I, I should say for the for the listeners who who may not know just how valuable your comments were along the way and how, how much better the book is because of them. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and Allies. And of course, check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer for this episode was Kara Schillen. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.